This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz, and I hope your week is off to a great start. Um, You know, of course, we're thinking about our fellow Mississippians who were impacted by the storms this past weekend, and we hope that their recovery is is a quick one. You know, our thoughts are going out to them. But today we're excited on the show to to talk about the 2022 term of the U.S. Supreme Court with our guest, Amir Badat, who is manager of the Voting Rights and Defender uh, Prepared to Vote projects and also voting special counsel at NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And attorney Max Myers, who uh, has joined us before, who's director of economic justice at the Mississippi Center for Justice. So welcome to both of you. Um, Could you please tell us a little bit about uh, your backgrounds and how you became interested in uh, in your current roles, but also in the Supreme Court. Hey, good morning. Sure, I can get started. I, uh, like you said, Professor Gershon, am an attorney with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. I focus mostly on voting rights work, and I am also a native of Mississippi. I was born in Meridian, uh, grew up in Meridian, and, you know, growing up in Mississippi, you hear a lot about the amazing civil rights history and the civil rights heroes of the state. And that really inspired me from a young age to be involved in civil rights. And so uh, when I graduated from high school, I went off to college in California, went to law school in New York, and I knew the entire time that I wanted to come back home and do civil rights work. And I was able to start doing that um, a few years ago by working on some campaigns, doing voter protection work. And eventually I found my way to the Legal Defense Fund, where I'm able to um, do this work um, not only in Mississippi, but across the South and, um, you know, really follow my passion and, and try to help as many people as I can. So that's kind of how I ended up here. And um, and I think, uh, good morning, Professor Gershon as well. And you'll know my story as well. I grew up in Michigan, um, was always really passionate about civil rights. That's something I was inspired through um, my elementary school teacher. Big shout out to Mr. Barham if he's listening up in <laughs> Michigan. Um, and I joined Teach for America in the Delta taught fourth and fifth grade. Also, shout out to my students if they're listening. I send out the link to everybody every time I'm going to be on the show. Um, And then when I had an opportunity to come back to Mississippi after law school, uh, the Mississippi Center for Justice brought me in as an immigration attorney uh, with a focus on the civil rights of Mississippians without immigration status. And through that, um, I've really developed a a passion for learning about the law and how it's applied to folks uh, in, in everyday lives here in the state. Well, it's great to have both of you on the show today. Thank you for being with us. And and today we're going to talk about the October 22 term of the U.S. Supreme Court that uh, seems to me it's been pretty busy. But um, how does how many cases did the Supreme Court hear this year and how does that compare to other years? So this year there were 60 cases that were actually argued uh, in front of the court. One of them has already been dismissed without an, an opinion given. 
Um, but relative to other years, and we were talking about this beforehand, COVID really had an impact that reduced the number of cases. Pre-COVID, uh, the court was averaging between 75 and 80 cases a year. So, I mean, we're at 75% of what the, the court was hearing previously. And you know, uh, one thing maybe people don't realize is they can listen to oral arguments as they happen. How can, how can they listen to oral arguments? So oral arguments are available online, uh, which is something that uh, it was another kind of innovation that happened during COVID. Um, and it, it's actually a, it's, it's a great way for the public to tune in and to understand kind of how the Supreme Court what works, who the different justices are on the Supreme Court, who uh, what you know what their personalities are, what they care about. Um, you hear a lot of the humor <laughs> that Supreme Court justices um, have and the jokes that they exchange with each other and with the litigants uh, before them. So um, the, it, and arguments are also live streamed, so you can hear them um, in real time when they're happening. And that's a new innovation from COVID as well. Previously, um, I, I, people had to wait a week until the end of the week for the arguments to post. And before that, people had to wait till the end of the term to hear the oral arguments. Um, and still, even now, the audio from the opinions, because each, especially during this season, when the court is having opinion release days where the justices actually read summaries of their opinions from the bench, that's not live streamed still. And those opinion readings are not posted online uh, until the following term. So we have no way of hearing that. So really our, our best way to kind of they think reading the tea leaves and things of that sort are, are through uh, listening to the folks on, on uh, through oral arguments every day. And, you know, I, there's a site called OYEZ, O-Y-E-Z, uh, that people can even look at uh, decisions made by the Supreme Court from decades ago and, and uh, get some background. So uh, people who are interested in the history of the Supreme Court, the, the, that's a great site as well. And I know we, Liz, I think we posted the OES uh, site previously um, with podcasts. So um, now you mentioned how long does it take for opinions to be issued typically? So they, we are still waiting on some opinions from the November sitting. All, um, so I guess that would be eight months, I think now. Um, they, they start, you know, opinions or the cases get heard beginning the first uh, Monday in October. Uh, every every year, and all of the all of the October cases, which was about eight, those have already been the opinions have been released in that. But the two big ones, which we'll have a chance to talk about later on in the show, from the November hearing, are the two affirmative action cases, and those have not been released yet. So, well, I just we're gonna we're gonna drill down into some specific cases, and you know, in the in, in the next segments. But what are some observations you've noticed from the term, both of you, with it about this particular term? I, I really do feel like, uh, and maybe it's just media, and et cetera, but I feel like this was a really active term and a lot of important cases occurred. Absolutely. Well, one thing that I think is interesting to think about and provides, I think, some important contextual background for the actual substantive opinions that we're going to be talking about is the kind of public perception about the court right now. Uh, we ha- we all know about the Dobbs decision and the leak decision that came out before the actual decision came out. We know about the kind of scandal around Justice Thomas and um, his acceptance of you know donations and questions about his um, his impartiality uh, uh, with respect to cases that are coming before the court. And we are seeing polls that show that 
the public's confidence in the court is at an all-time low. And I think it's important to think about that in the context of some of the cases that we're seeing and, and kind of how that might be motivating some of the cases that we are, we're seeing come out of the court right now. And, and I think to add on to that, I, we've seen, um, and again, to talk later on in the case about uh, or in the show about what Chief Justice Roberts has appeared to have been trying to do with um, with, with appearing nonpartisan. I, th- I think that's a- across the board. The court has been. I, I think Amy Coney, Bar- Amy Coney Barrett gave a speech in Notre Dame at her alma mater, trying to say, "Oh, we are not politicians. We're judges." All the, but I mean, that really only goes so far when you when the when the cases continue to really split along ideological lines. The chief justice has tried to go uh, with the liberals from here and there, but for the most part, it, it ends up being really it's a six-three split in a lot of cases. Um, and then I'll, I'll also mention just as far as observations from from the day. And I, I actually I was I was looking to see if maybe this was already a meme, and it's not. So if there are any meme <laughs> makers out there, I would really encourage you. Grumpy Gorsuch, I think, could be a really hot a hot meme that could really take take the country by storm. He is um, he's an appointee from 2017, and really it can be very surly on the bench. Um, uh, Attorney Badat was talking about uh, you know listening to the personalities as you you know hear the cases. And while he does have some some quick some quick wit and some funny jokes, a lot of times he can be very aggressive with some of the attorneys, um, and he just comes across as, as pretty grumpy. And that's gotten uh, more apparent, I think, over over the last couple terms as well. Folks, I want you to know we've been doing some renovation for the MPB studios, and Jay White. This show, I had never thought, would be a really good reason to use these cameras. We've got we've got these new cameras in our studio that we had planned, well, more for like when the snake guy comes to Creature Comforts, <laughs> you know, to show the snake. Or if, uh, you know, someone has got a, a show and tell. This show, I really wish you could see our guests. They are... Um, uh, legal decision fanboy groupies. <laughs> they have such big smiles. Uh, um, I'm a big fan of BTS, and I don't know, y'all are army for uh, Supreme Court decisions, and this is just so exciting. You are making this contagious. I'm all excited to hear what the Supreme Court has talked about because you two are so excited. And if you have a question about some of the Supreme Court decisions this session, you can send us an email to our address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. We are discussing the recent decisions from our U.S. Supreme Court with attorneys Omir Badat and Max Myers. This is going to be so much fun. And we need to go ahead and get that meme started. Now, not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live. So if you've missed any of our program, you can hear the whole show from inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Now, just looking at the the breadth of issues that the Supreme Court has heard in this 2022-2023 season session, they've covered things like social media issues, but then also water rights, you know, tackling uh, brand new and old disputes. And, you know, each of these could affect you and your life. And that's why we've got attorney Omir Badat, manager of the Voting Rights Defender and Prepare to Vote 
Projects and Voting Special Counsel at NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and Attorney Max Myers, Director of Economic Justice at the Mississippi Center for Justice, here to help us understand, uh, you know, what decisions have been released by the Supreme Court and uh, the few that we are still waiting for. Yes, Liz. And, uh, you know, it's it's really, these are important cases we're going to be talking about. And as you mentioned, Amir, is your area is voting rights. And that's what you focus on at NAACP. And so uh, we've, we've seen some decisions already come out, at least in one of the two big voting rights cases. I, I have to admit, I, I was a little bit surprised by the decision, happily so. Um, can you share a little bit about what we've seen come out of the court uh so far this year and in, in the last decade and, and what we anticipate going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you asked about kind of the decisions that have come out in the past decade because I think they provide important context for the decisions that we've seen so far this term on voting. You know, the past decade has been one of the most, uh, I think, eventful decades in the context of voting rights jurisprudence uh, in the Supreme Court uh, that we've seen. And that's because in 2013, the Supreme Court decided a really important case interpreting the 1965 Voting Rights Act um, that essentially did away with one of the most important protections of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And that was the preclearance regime under Section 5 of the VRA. And uh, as a little bit of background for listeners, what the VRA did was that for certain states that had a long history of discrimination, Mississippi included, uh, the VRA required under Section 5 that those states, before they enact any new laws that touched on elections or voting, that that they pre-clear those laws with the federal government. And the federal government would evaluate whether or not those laws had any impact on the ability of minority voters to vote, um, any discriminatory impact. And if they did, then uh, the state would have to essentially go back to the drawing board and try again. Um, And so what the case in 2013 did in Shelby County, Chief Justice Roberts essentially said, well, we've come a long way. Uh, We've made some really important strides in the context of racial discrimination, and we don't need the protections of Section 5 as uh, as they were articulated uh, under the the statute at that time um, anymore. And so that did away with a really, really important protection that we had under the VRA. And um, a few years later, in 2021, uh, the Supreme Court again had an opportunity to uh, interpret a provision of the Voting Rights Act, this time Section 2, which prevented discrimination on the basis of race uh, in the context of voting. And it created some additional barriers and made it a little bit more difficult for plaintiffs to succeed in proving Section 2 cases. And that case was called Brnovich. Um, And then Separately, in in 2019, the court, um, again, Chief Justice Roberts writing the opinion, decided Ruscio versus Common Cause. And in that case, this was a case that uh, related to the redistricting of North Carolina's congressional districts. And there, the case held that partisan gerrymandering, which is drawing congressional lines on the basis of political affiliation, trying to uh, maximize the one party's interests over the other, um, that partisan gerrymandering wasn't something that federal courts could hear. It was a non-justiciable political question that federal courts wouldn't hear those claims. But he promised, or not necessarily promised, but indicated that state courts should still be an avenue for parties to um, to have their their claims heard in that context. And so that's, that's some of the background that led up to the cases that we're seeing uh, this term. 
And so we had a recent case uh, come out on the Voting Rights Act um, and and really, uh, you know, kind of, I think, uh, was surprising in a way going back to the 2013 case when uh, Justice Roberts said, we don't need preclearance anymore because essentially states won't discriminate anymore. And, and so what, what did this recent case hold? Sure. So this case is Allen versus Milligan. And full disclosure, LDF, the organization that I work for, litigated this case all the way up to the Supreme Court. And so uh, I obviously have a perspective on uh, the case and the outcome. And I I think that it was the right outcome. Um, and, And so what this case dealt with was, again, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and it dealt with the redistricting of Alabama's congressional districts. Alabama, after the 2020 census uh, results were released, uh, redrew its congressional map and included one majority-minority district, or a district where black residents were the majority um, of the the population there. The VRA Section 2 requires that majority-minority districts be drawn under certain circumstances. And what the plaintiffs in Milligan argued was that actually – uh, Alabama was required to draw an additional majority minority district because the requirements of Section 2 were triggered because there was a um, compact population of black residents in Alabama that had been a community um, that had the same interests for a long time and that uh, historically, because of racially polarized voting, because of the the fact that Generally, black voters vote one way, white voters vote another way, and white voters' preferences generally tend to defeat black voters' preferences because of the history of discrimination um, that a majority-minority district should be drawn in Alabama. And um, to your point, Professor Gershon, surprisingly, Chief Justice Roberts agreed. <laughs> and um, we, you know, we, we didn't necessarily expect that given his history, his, the fact that he wrote Shelby County, um, and because of the, some of the arguments that the state of Alabama made, which were essentially that race in drawing uh, a congressional map, race shouldn't be considered when you're, even when you're trying to remedy prior discrimination. And um, what Chief Justice Roberts said is that no, uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is a remedial statute intended to remedy prior discrimination. And in order to do that, you have to consider race. And I think that it's a really important holding. It's going to have really important implications across the country, um, including here in Mississippi. There's a lawsuit, Section 2 lawsuit against the state legislative districts. And I think um, there will be a broad ripple effect to this holding. So here's my question. Usually when something good happens that you don't think was going to happen and it was made by an opposition, there's another shoe or there's something further down the pipe. Is there anything that you could see, you know, given that you a lot of people thought Chief Justice Roberts wasn't going to lean in that direction? Is there a reason he did that might be in the future that other people might not? You know, he's he's swaying this this way for his opinion, but it may not be good for people, uh, other people down the line. So I think that's a, a really interesting question. And it goes back to what we talked about uh, earlier in that. 
you know, Chief Justice Roberts is, you know, many commentators say he's trying to protect the, the court as an institution and the credibility of the court as an institution. And so some people see this decision as an attempt to further that, to bolster the credibility of the court, to, uh, you know, do away with these arguments that their partisan interests dictating their decisions. Other commentators say that, you know, we have another very important case that hasn't been decided on affirmative action that we'll talk about in a little bit uh, that deals with actually many of the same core issues about race. And many commentators think that decision is going to do away with affirmative action. So people say maybe this is setting the groundwork for the court to be able to do that down the road. Now, I, I very much hope that that's not the case. And I think that, um, you know, affirmative action is constitutional. Uh, but that some people think that that might be what is motivating the decision here. It's really, really fascinating. Well, you know, the court, you never know now. I mean, I think uh, there was some unfortunate predictability fairly early on in the, in the term. Um, now, what about... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the independent state legislature theory. Is that does, did the the Section Two case have any impact on that theory at all? So the Section Two case, uh, Milligan did not have an impact on that case. But there is the case that I think you're referring to, Professor Gershon Moore versus Harper, that we haven't received an opinion yet on uh, that will tell us whether or not the independent state legislature theory is something that courts should be applying. And, you know, essentially what that theory says, it's rooted in the elections clause of um, the Constitution, which says that state legislatures are responsible for setting the time, place and manner of congressional elections. And that gives state legislatures authority to, you know, dictate where people should vote, how people should vote, when they should vote um, for congressional elections. And the case, um, uh, you know, the underlying case is, is another redistricting case, a partisan gerrymandering case that went through the state courts in North Carolina, where the North Carolina Supreme Court essentially said that the legislature's congressional map was a partisan gerrymander illegal under the state constitution. And what the defendants in this case are arguing under the independent state legislature theory is that the court, the state court, has no authority to say whether or not a redistricting map is legal or illegal because the state legislature has sole authority over all things related to elections, congressional elections. And so at it, in its most extreme version, what this theory does is that it says that the governor, the state courts, no actor apart from the state legislature has any authority to tell us what elections should look like. So it would do away with the governor's veto. It would do away with citizen ballot initiatives on elections. It would do away with state court review, even under violations of the state constitution. And so we're in a little bit of a weird procedural posture with the case because the North Carolina Supreme Court actually chose to rehear the case after um, an election changed the constitution, the political constitution of the court. And so the North Carolina Supreme Court reversed its prior decision on rehearing. And now the Supreme Court is trying to decide whether or not the case before it is moot. So 
This one is going to be, I think, a surprise anyway that it comes out if the court hears it and you know decides the ISL theory. Um, it'll be interesting to see. Alternatively, the court could say we're not going to hear it because the case is moot, and in which case, um, you know, th- there will probably be uh, other opportunities down the road for the court to hear this case because I don't think this theory is going away. I'm loving this show. It's it's like. Uh when everyone's talking about the NBA draft right before the draft happens, and so everyone's got their speculations and their theories, and then we'll see what's going to happen. This is, we're all talking about the Supreme Court decisions and what are they going to be and how's that going to affect everybody. So if you have a question about how these Supreme Court decisions affect you, email us your questions. That address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Now, last week on In Legal Terms, we were happy to have as our guest ACLU Mississippi Executive Director Jarvis Dorich, and he discussed voting rights with us. So if that's of interest to you, give our podcast a listen, or you can read the transcript found on our YouTube channel's recording, MPB Think radio. That's all All the kids, all the kids nowadays, they have the closed captioning on uh, on the YouTube. And so if you want to listen to the podcast by reading it, our, our YouTube channel, we don't have the camera set up yet, but it does do a transcript so you can read our show. We are talking about recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions with our guest, Amir Badat from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and Max Myers from Mississippi Center for Justice. As I want to say, I've been uh, ahead of the game for a long time because I've been using the closed captions for a long time. It's <laughs> the only way I can understand anything. But... Uh, it is so great to have Amir and Max on the show today. And and so now, you know, Amir, you you referenced the kind of the intersection of voting rights with affirmative action. And now, Max, um, you know, we had uh, these uh, two cases dealing with affirmative action also during the October term. So can you can you tell us a little bit about the history of affirmative action? Absolutely. So um, affirmative action, the phrase was uh, can tra- get traced back to when JFK and LBJ uh, issued executive orders calling for affirmative action um, in hiring and government contracts, basically taking account of race by seeing, oh, you know, for the last 300 years or so, you know, uh, black people in America have been discriminated against in, at times enslaved and even after slavery still, you know, not, not permitted to have government contracts or have equal access to education. And that uh, phrase, affirmative action, kind of morphed into uh, having a, a special meaning in the context of college admissions and in education generally. The first time that the Supreme Court dealt with this case or, w- or with this type of a, of a case was in 1978. It's a case called uh, Baki. Uh, I actually both 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 of the two background cases I'll talk about. I have special meaning for me. I went to the University of California Davis, uh, and Baki was a case about uh, medical school admissions at the University of California Davis, and it was actually upheld uh, and. Uh, Justice Powell, who is uh, a Virginian, uh, you know, Southerner by birth, he even spoke directly to the necessity and, and importance of having race-conscious admis- uh, admissions practices in order to take account for past discrimination. Um, and then, if you fast forward uh, later on uh, to 2003 at the University of Michigan, which is also my alma mater for my undergraduate, um, they, they that that case uh, was called. There were two cases: one Grutter which dealt with law school admissions and the other grants, which dealt with undergraduate admissions. 
Um, and, and basically the court came out of that with what we kind of conceive as a, as a more modern approach to what the court will accept for uh, affirmative action. And in those cases, they struck down the undergraduate system. Uh, they found, and Justice O'Connor wrote both opinions. She found that in, uh, the, in the undergraduate admissions context, it was a point-based system where uh, basically folks who were underrepresented minorities on campus received uh, a point on their application for you know, identifying uh, their background, and they determined that was actually not uh, acceptable based on their standards. Uh, but for the law school where it was where race was taken in as one of a of a more holistic approach, one of many factors that the that the admissions team was considering, O'Connor said that actually is very much acceptable and uh, you know it emphasized the importance of diversity on campus and generally the idea that in order for us as a society to advance and to really be as successful and to achieve our full potential, we need to be able to utilize all of our people resources and that means all of our people resources. Um, she did, uh, you know, I mentioned Justice O'Connor added a kind of a sort of uncommon caveat in her opinion, which was that she set a, a timeline, which typically courts don't, especially the Supreme Court does not do, uh, based on, you know, it was 2003 when the opinion came out. That was 25 years after the Bakke decision in 78. And she put in uh, what some folks thought as dicta, which is just kind of like side chit chat and opinions and not actual you know, uh, legally binding language, but some folks now have started to see that as more of an actual uh, true, uh, you know, whole part of the holding that in 25 years from 2003, so that would be 2028, that there shouldn't be a need for uh, college campuses to utilize race-conscious affirmative action. And that was something that really came up pretty heavily in the current opinion that, that we had this term. Well, let's talk a little bit about it. You mentioned the, the opinions this term. What what, what were the two cases uh, that were heard this term on so affirmative action? The two cases came out of uh, one a public institution, which was University of North Carolina, and the other private institution, uh, which is Harvard. Uh, both of them challenged uh, – it's the Students for Fair Admissions, and, and essentially what it was is it boiled down to a group of students – alleging that the affirmative action systems at both of those universities had a discriminatory impact on uh, Asian students being admitted to, to, um, to the campus. And, it, and in doing so, it brought up a lot of pretty you know, uh, common arguments about what, you know, what, it, what, what role should race play in admissions. And when we, when we listened to oral arguments, you really heard the court grappling with that idea of whether Still in 2023, even though we are still five years short of Justice O'Connor's uh, timeline, whether well, first of all, whether this should even be something that the court should be allowed to touch at this point. Um, I, I heard in particular uh, Barrett and Kavanaugh were, were very uh, kind of clinging on to that idea of, you know, we need five more years maybe or can we even touch this topic for five years? I think as a way to try to skirt the, the real issue. Um, but then what you ended up really, you know, when you got to the meat and bones of the of the argument, it boiled down to whether, you know, whether we are still a society that has remnants and vestiges of our uh, racist and, you know, white supremacist past. And in the context of uh, school admissions and school campuses, I mean, I, I'll play, I'll show all my cards. I certainly think that that's, that that's the case, that there, you know, when you look at um, institutions like the University of Michigan, for example, which was after after the Grutter case, the state responded by passing a law saying 
or a constitutional amendment saying that there was no place for race in, in admissions. And as a result of that, the University of Michigan's uh, student demographics have become less representative of the actual state of, of, of Michigan, with black students in particular uh, playing and having a, a smaller and smaller percentage on campus. Um, in, in this case, though, I, I, I think what the, it plays at the reason why they took two different cases, one private, one public, is the idea of whether a, you know a public institution is able to um, is, is able to actually take race into consideration in a, in a way that a private institution is not. There is this idea of state action, which we've talked about uh, in previous shows, which is that when the state acts, they have a particular obligation to act equally and, and, and more, um, you know, without uh, without account for, for race or for gender and think, protected categories like that. Um, but that, you know, the Harvard itself also has a responsibility because they accept federal funds through uh, through federal programming, which would mean that they'd also be susceptible to Title VI as well. Well, I can, I can say that when I was in law school – you know, with Shakespeare, um, it was, uh, uh, you know, a whole different landscape. There were, it was, you know, all white men, maybe a couple of women. Uh, we had um, one person of color in my in my law school class. And now I look at my students at the University of Mississippi, and it's a much more diverse group of people, and it's much better for the profession and much better for the discussion in class to have people of different backgrounds. And so, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the court does. Um, we do use holistic review as, as is allowed, you know, and that's what I think every every law school is doing. Um, but it's you know it's 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 very uh, very interesting. Now, what do you think? Could you predict? Are you going to, as as Liz said, that's where we're in that that role now of trying to predict what's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I think um, so. I think there are a couple things. Um, I'll just echo what Amir said earlier, which is um, I, I agree. I think that the fact that they released the uh, the Merrill case, you know, that was a, a win in, in a lot of ways for, um, for for racial justice and how race can be used in society to um, to take account of the past. I think that that doesn't really necessarily bode well for affirmative action. You, you, when you look at the court makeup, there's three solid votes, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Jackson, that are going to vote yes. Uh, and then beyond that, it gets really uh, – uh, very unlikely that anybody else is going to pick up a vote, especially when you have folks like the Chief Justice who has said things in the past in the context of um, elementary school uh, race-conscious decisions in Seattle. He he said pretty bluntly that the best way to you know stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Uh, of course, the other side of that is what Justice Sotomayor said, which is the best way to uh, to stop discriminating on the basis of races, take a full account of, of race and how that, that plays into things. Um, but at the oral argument, what you heard, uh, you heard a lot of skepticism from the uh, Republican-appointed justices, um, even at the idea of what of what was one of the saving, uh, by many folks think is the saving grace in the 2003 cases in Michigan, which was a military brief that basically it was 30-odd 30, 30 uh, number of retired military officers that said, um, at you know, and uh, in, in the military, diversity, especially among the officer corps, is crucial to success in, in our operations, and that was cited multiple times in that in that um, in that decision. And in, in this instance, actually, in oral arguments, you heard the Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger make reference to the military and try to say that not only is you know does the United States have a have a huge interest and in, important national security interest in, in maintaining a diverse uh, and effective officer corps. Um, through the military academies, but also they depend most of the most of the officers that are in the military come from ROTC programs, 
Um, and those are on all of, you know, Harvard, UNC, every college campus across the country. So, of course, there has to be a diverse group of students in order to produce a diverse group of officers. But at the end of the day, um, it really is going to come down to a question of what, you know, what these six uh, conservative justices think about affirmative action. And they've really spoke pretty plainly on this in the past that they're not they're not in support of it. Can, can I jump in real quick just to kind of touch on the point that Max made about these timelines that the court has placed on how long we can consider race to remedy past discrimination. You know, I I mentioned earlier that in the Shelby County case, in the context of voting, Chief Justice Roberts said, well, you know, we're beyond (laughs) discrimination. We're beyond the need for Section 5. Uh, With time, we've achieved enough to be able to get rid of it. And actually, in in a dissent, um, Justice Ginsburg wrote that getting rid of Section 5 is like throwing your umbrella away because you're not getting wet in a rainstorm. Um, And in the Milligan case, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, who joined Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, wrote a separate concurrence and noted there that at this time, race um, can be considered when drawing majority-minority districts under Section 2. But um, he suggested that this might be a topic that we might revisit at a certain time in the future. Um, and, and obviously, like Max mentioned, we've had we've had this kind of 25 year timeline on how long we might be able to consider race in the context of admissions and uh, college admissions. And, and so it suggests that, you know, with time, we might be able to permanently be beyond um, the need to consider race. And, you know, even if we accept, which I, I, I don't think is the case, but even if we accept that we are beyond race at the current moment, that it, I, I think it's flawed reasoning to think that we won't go back <laughs> to a place where um, you know racism exists and 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 um, where we need these types of laws that protect against uh, discrimination and, and require us to think about how race impacts um, biases that decision makers have. Um, and so I just wanted to to throw that out there because I think it's a common thread among um, these two cases and really important in kind of the, the context of a lot of the cases that the Supreme Court hears on race. And very appropriate for citizens of the state of Mississippi. Definitely. <laughs> Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. At 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. We are so grateful for Attorney Max Myers, Director of Economic Justice at the Mississippi Center for Justice. He's returned to our show today, and he was our guest on March 14th of 2023 and discussed loans. And we are very glad to add our newest voice to the show, Attorney Amar Badat, Manager of the Voting Rights Defender and Prepared to Vote Projects and Voting Special Counsel at the NAACP Legal Defense. Fund. You know, both organizations have suggestions on ways you can support their work on their respective websites, and I'll have links to that information on the information for this show. Now we're moving to the civics lesson part of our show. We have a phone call today from Todd in Jackson. Todd, we're glad you've called in. What is your comment or question? Well, you know, I'm I'm old, I'm white, and I'm not articulate, so I'll try to be as quick as I can. Um, your guests are extremely articulate. This is a great program, and it's 
it's uh, unfortunate that civil rights has been so uh, out of necessity tied to uh, issues of race. Uh, it's just as important to every citizen, just like human rights are. I have two questions, and uh, 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 I'll ask if they just give brief answers. One is, since the Supreme Court can hear such a few number of supplicants uh, for a request to have their cases heard, that basically makes the uh, Court of Appeals uh, the Supreme Court for most cases, and, and I'd like your guests to comment briefly uh, uh, once I get all my questions about how that affects uh, civil rights cases that, that never make it to the Supreme Court. Um, my, my other question has to do with the Dobbs leak uh, and their speculation about it. Um, I have uh, several acquaintances who, I am not an attorney, but they have uh, uh, been before the federal bench on many occasions. And, and when I asked what they thought about the Dobbs leak, uh, there was sort of some snickering and laughter in the room. And they said, well, you know, the oldest trick in the book is for a judge to leak his opinion in advance to find out what public reaction is going to be. And so their, their, their suspicion was that Alito himself probably made the leak. My question is not so much about Alito himself, but is that sort of a known fact uh, about judges that when they have a controversial opinion or a potential one, that they, they leak it somehow to the public uh, through the news media or whatever to, in advance to sort of test the waters? That's one of my questions, what, what people's experience um, has been. Um, and I'll, I'll listen uh, uh, off the air. Thank you for your, the questions. I can take the first one uh, really quickly. Uh, so the question was about the Court of Appeals, um, and because the cases that the Supreme Court can take are limited, um, what position does the Court of Appeals have in the context of civil rights cases? And it's a really important one. We have nine different courts of appeals across the country, and each one you know, covers a different region. And I think because of that, you see that each one um, has kind of a different set of jurisprudence on a lot of civil rights issues. And Mississippi is in the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit is known notoriously for not being very friendly to civil rights cases. And so that means that oftentimes it's more difficult to bring civil rights lawsuits in um, places like Mississippi or Texas, which are in the Fifth Circuit, as compared to a place like California, which is in the Ninth Circuit and is seen as more friendly to, to civil rights. Um, so it's really, really important, something we think about a lot. Um, and yeah, thank you for the question. And, and I'll comment briefly on this on the second point. I, I've heard a couple of different uh, theories. These are all going to be hot takes, so I'm have not my opinions, but just things I've read. Uh, one, I certainly have heard the idea that Alito leaked it, uh, not so much to get an idea of what the public perception would be. I think everybody knew that based on the mass protests and, and you know, the uh, guard walls they had to put around the building, but more so actually to try to hold on to a couple of votes that might have been wavering. Um, there was, I mean, you know, judges are uh, are people and they, you know, they do go through uh, horse trading, I think is an expression. I never get to use that phrase, but I'll, I'll use it here. Um, and in particular, I think Roberts, who was really worried about the perception of the Supreme Court and especially the idea of stare decisis, which is the, the rule that the court has to follow previous decisions uh, unless there's you know crazy changes or you know uh, extenuating circumstances. Uh, Roberts had already shown in the past couple abortion cases um, that he was ready to change his own personal belief and actually vote with uh, you know 
pro-women's rights justices in order to maintain the status quo uh, through stare decisis. And it, there was some uh, speculation that maybe he was I – mean, he ultimately did vote against Alito, um, but that maybe he was trying to pick off another vote like Kavanaugh possibly, and Alito wanted to uh, avoid that situation, and so he released it early. Uh, that's actually that's the hottest of all the takes. I, I'm not going to share any other in the interest in the interest of, of time. I would say. Thanks for your call, Todd. Uh, we're out of time. So uh, we had someone ask a question about checks and balances. They're going to have to go back to their ninth grade civics textbook because we are bill out on Capitol of Hill is time. always a good one. I would say. Okay. So thank you, Max Myers and Amir Badat. Uh, We're so glad you came. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate you having us. This was great. Our team consists of board engineer Jay White and call screener and podcast producer Abram Nanny with our intern, Selena Clay. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Please join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.